Hey everybody, thanks for coming back and listening to another episode of Nevermind Who Listens. Just a quick update, we are currently on Apple Podcasts, finally, Spotify, Stitcher, and the podcast itself is hosted through Podbean, so you can find all new episodes and past episodes there, which this is only the second episode, so you can go back and listen to the first if you're just now tuning in. Thank you also to everyone who has followed the Instagram page at Nevermind Who Listens. Nevermind Who Listens is a podcast based in music discussion, psychology, and philosophy, sometimes separate and sometimes together in conversation. Episode 2, Explicit Content. Curiosity, Rebellion, and the Nature of Seeking Controversy. As a child of the late 80s, and I grew up pretty much in the 90s, something shifted culturally that everyone thought would be a good idea to bring forth this famous or infamous black and white sticker at the lower corner of music you've purchased. I know you've seen it. This tag, you know, it it restricted some of us from accessing the music that our peers were listening to. Now, that wasn't very much true for me. I was lucky that my parents didn't really restrict the music that I listened to. Uh, But for some folks, this little sticker changed their listening habits and possibly encouraged some rebellion, which I can get behind. So, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Parental Advisory Explicit Content Sticker. If you haven't seen it on a CD or a record or a cassette, then you have seen it in the form of a t-shirt or a hat, or maybe even as that little tag that's just an E on streaming services to say explicit. The sticker that we know today first started hitting CDs in 1990. There were versions of it before, but in 1990, that's when we got the little sticker in the lower right corner. As you can imagine, I think most musicians were pretty opposed to this in the beginning, for probably reasons similar to the foundational idea of this podcast. You know, create something meaningful as though no one is listening to you, and now their music's being subject to a panel of people determining if their music gets marked explicit. I mean, if you've been listening to any of Joe Rogan's conversations with Jack Dorsey recently, I I think there's some similar conversation there when it comes to censorship and how far it should go for free speech. I'm not going to get into any of that, but I encourage you to listen to the podcasts with Joe and Jack. It's really interesting uh, when you talk about corporations limiting free speech. Now, granted, the PMRC isn't limiting anybody's speech. They're just marking if something is explicit or not. However, the point I'm trying to get to is there's still a panel of people judging this music and deeming if it's explicit or not. Uh, And that's, that's really pretty subjective. This sticker, I think, was probably a badge of deterrence, but ultimately probably made people want to listen to the music even more and drove some curiosity and probably spiked record sales for some artists because people want to know why it's explicit. And I'm sure musicians quickly learned that the sticker might not be so bad after all, but maybe not for the same reasons that the PMRC thought. Peaking curiosity and... It probably only limited the listening of those people who were relying on their parents 
uh, to front up the cash for their latest Nine Inch Nails or Two Live Crew album, which I guess the PMRC really achieved their goal in that regard because, you know, their idea was to protect children from explicit content. I think there's something to be said about the appealing nature of things that we're not supposed to have or, quote, supposed to have because it's really up to you. But is it the curiosity of what's inside of the album marked explicit or the fact that someone's telling you to beware that ignites your inner rebel? So as time passed, the sticker evolved to include more specific details as to how the content was explicit, which ultimately... I believe, achieves the PMRC's original intent of warning folks in a better way. And to some degree, it's something I can agree with. I think that's important. That specificity diminishes some of the curiosity, which probably curbed some of the impulse buying to see what's so explicit. But I also think that specificity of what is explicit about the record serves as a buffer for folks who don't want to be surprised by vulgarity or need some type of warning. And this is where my therapist's spidey senses start tingling because I'm thinking of someone with a trauma history who would want to know if there are references to violence or sexual acts or some type of like really explicit language uh, that could be triggering to anxiety and yelling. So I, I, I think it's important for those people. As I said earlier, in the digital age of streaming, a simple tag of the letter E has replaced the sticker in most regards. I think this is also a testament to the change in acceptableness of questionable language, sexual references, and violence. That bar, I think, has been substantially lowered depending, you know, on your personal stance or raised as to what is deemed explicit. So how is this a reflection of culture? If art is a reflection of life, what does current mainstream music reflect about life? Acceptance? Repression? Regression? Progress? It's subjective to a certain degree, but one thing I'd like to speak to is the effect that some explicit music and art, including video games, has on adolescence. So does anybody remember, and this is really random, Phil Donahue? Talk show host white hair, big glasses. In 1995, he had Marilyn Manson on his talk show and with the support of his audience, chastised Manson and tried to make a mockery of his music and his physical appearance, which really is all those things, like his music, the way he talks to people, his physical appearance, all those things are a part of Manson's art. Like that's, that's what he does. You know, he's this really articulate person who likes to make people uncomfortable. He's a shock rocker standing on the shoulders of these giants of the genre who came before him. Alice Cooper, Iggy Pop, Gigi Allen. You know, that one's a little more extreme, but still a shock rocker. I think he lives and breathes making people uncomfortable, and he sings about things that are controversial. In the 90s, I don't think anybody did it like him. I think they came close, but I think Manson got blamed for a lot of things that were not his fault, and we'll get into that later. For teenagers like me, I felt validated, and I felt encouraged by his music and his protest to normal social standards. Now, granted, I didn't deal with any childhood depression or anything like that that needed an outlet, 
I think it, it helped me channel some of the nervous energy that I had because this music was driving, it hit hard. And it was so different to the aesthetic of the music that my parents listened to on the radio. So in some ways it was validating this other side of me and kind of ignited some creativity in me and Will. For others, it was like watching a car accident. Difficult to look away, but glued to every moment. Witness to something vulnerable that someone else is going through, but not totally understanding exactly what that person is feeling as they go through this moment of tragedy or potential tragedy. This music was an outlet and was so important to so many, though the greater majority of news outlets and media and politicians seemed to be opposed to it. And anytime something happened, they blamed Manson and other rock artists' music for causing this school shooting or an increase or perceived increase in self-harm behavior and violence. They would damn the music as a cause of violence and suicide, self-harm, negative influence, whatever it was. It was, a, it was a scapegoat for deeper issues. The same said about first-person shooter video games like Doom or fighting games like Mortal Kombat that were really bloody. But we know it isn't true that these types of art increase these things. And I know all my music therapy colleagues know how important it is to engage in that type of music, to access those feelings and get them out and explore them. Like anything else, though, there are exceptions. You know, people do harm themselves and sometimes harm others and claim music or video games as a driving force. But it has to be understood that something else internally is probably going on for those individuals. So this music and these video games, not just Manson, but most of the rock and even rap of the 1990s, are outlets for aggression and self-deprecation. So the music's validating, and it meets emotional experiencing with emotional validation. It gives meaning to what someone in depression might be feeling, or someone who has a lot of anger. So granted, you know, this, this music can bring people down. And the fact of the matter is that depressing music can make people feel sadder and more depressed. So in those situations, the music isn't the reason for the depression or self-harm behavior, but merely just a cog in the machine driving the behavior. So typically there is underlying mental health issues that have not been addressed. And it is in those cases on which media tend to focus, neglecting all the other parts of the story to push some agenda or holier-than-thou politics and grandstanding to stay in office. The greater majority of the people listening to this music in the 90s were listening to it for validation and self-expression. I mean, it's why anybody listens to music that makes them feel a certain way. You know, it's, it's not to drive some other behavior, it's to validate what you're already feeling. In this case, uh, you know, the music was... The language of parts of these people, these communities that are driven by, you know, similar music listening habits. And it probably wasn't being expressed in any other me medium than the music they were listening to. They were drawn together as a community for so many other reasons than the lyrical content of the music. I mean, let's think about mosh pits. You know, it seems like there was a resurgence of mosh pits in the 90s, but mosh pits came around in, in the 1970s with the punk scene in L.A. And those punk artists really paved the way for the artists of the 90s. 
little disclaimer here, my focus on the rock music and I guess music in general, the 90s is selfish because it's some of my favorite music and it's the decade in which I spent my early and mid-adolescent years. Other than the music of the 1960s, 90s mainstream rock music was given more flexibility in the amount of creativity they were allowed by these recording labels that were managing the music that was coming out. The business, uh, the music business was actually caring about the way music was influential. I don't know. There was just a sense of importance put on new and creative music. That's, that's really kind of hard to imagine happening now. It didn't seem like the grunge rock and other rock of the 90s was really driven by financial success, but really creative success. Now, granted, if we shift and refocus our attention to the music on the other end of the spectrum, pop icons, boy bands, that statement reverses. That, that seems so financially driven at the time. And if you look at the subject content of the music itself, there there wasn't any of the same stuff. So, I mean, I, I get that, and I think that's important to have that type of balance because you want music for art and you want music for fun. Boy bands and pop icons were writing music for fun. They weren't trying to create any art. Now, there probably are going to be some Backstreet Boys fans who maybe will disagree with me as to whether or not it's art. I mean, yeah, it's art, but it's it's something created for fun. And I don't think anybody can disagree with that, as opposed to a band like Tool, who spend months writing their records. You know, it it is really artful. They are masters of their craft, and I really, really hope that they're going to release an album this year. So if you're a Tool fan, keep your fingers crossed with me. I think now we've kind of flipped the script for mainstream rock music now, because I think... We're back to the business side of things. Rock music isn't very artful, but then you have music like pop music, like Lady Gaga, that is super art-based. And you have artists like Kendrick Lamar and Frank Ocean who are out there creating really meaningful music that I can totally get behind that taps into some of these same themes. Maybe not self-harm and suicide, but going through difficult things and talking about it in a raw and honest way. I would like to talk more in later episodes about business versus creativity in the music business. So we'll get to that. But right now, back to explicit content as an outlet. Does music containing references to violence, drugs, and self-harm cause more of those things to happen? I posit, and I've been saying this whole episode, that I don't think it does. And I'd go as far as to say that the music with those themes solely serve as an outlet and never as an instigator. You know, the punk rock of the 70s, grunge and shock rock of the 90s, all popular and somewhat conventionally contested genres of music that were somewhat mainstream during their time. All came with a community of angsty teens looking for new parts of their own story and living in the moment. Feelings of being misunderstood and outcasted, lovesick, recently dumped, the need to punch someone or something. You know, this excess energy that was percolating as anxiety, you know, that's that's kind of my story. 90s rock 
was so reflective of these needs, and I believe it helped keep self-harm and suicide rates lower during the decade. So I pulled a study uh, that was done by these three doctors, one of which was an MD, two was a PhD, uh, McCown, Cuff, and Schultz. And it was from the American Journal of Public Health, October 2006. And it was on suicide rates by decade and age range. And in the study, they showed that suicide rates in adolescents actually decreased in the 90s and in 1994 hit a low they had not seen since the 1970s. There's not anything that I found in regards to music having an impact on this decrease, but most, well, most media would probably support the opposite. But I would say considering the impact that music has on identity development, especially for the 13 to 16-year-old bunch, I bet it is a factor. Other important factors to consider are antidepressants and social media. Antidepressants have always been and always will be cause for concern when it comes to increased rates of suicide. Social media didn't exist in the 90s outside of AOL Instant Messenger, and that's really kind of a loose social media because it really was just another form of communication. Yeah, my other 90s kids will remember how important it was to have your bio or I think it was called your your profile. Maybe it was called your profile where you could manipulate the way the text looked. So when people added you on AIM, you could, you know, have some form of creative ability there. Um, So, yeah, shout out to everybody who was on AIM. Anyways, I think antidepressants and social media speak volumes to the way mainstream music has evolved, especially with the idea of instant gratification, right? Everything is so instant. News is instant. The way you get your music is instant. Like when a new album drops, you don't have to drive to the store and purchase it. All you have to do is open up Spotify or Apple Music or Google Play on your phone and boom, you have your favorite artist's new album uh, if they've released it on streaming services. And and Tidal, too. Forgot about Tidal. I, I... I think instant gratification is is damaging to creativity because the creative process isn't instant. It's a process. It's not a product. Now, you can create a product out of your creativity, but I really think instant gratification is damaging to the creative process. Overall, mainstream music now doesn't really have much in regards to themes that music of the 90s did. Now, granted, we live in a different time, but suicide and self-harm are more prevalent now than they ever have been for teenage girls specifically. And the music now has more of a focus on partying and illicit drug use. Now, I know, uh, you know, the artist Logic, he has a song and the title of the song is the Suicide Hotline number. And I've talked with clients in my mental health groups about this song, and they've engaged that, you know, they've initiated that conversation because the song was validating for them. And, you know, shout out to Logic for creating that song because it's it's meant a lot to people who've dealt with those things. We're getting there to a certain degree. Some people do create music that's validating in that regard. Please remember, I'm talking about just mainstream music as a reflection of how things are kind of going during that time and a reflection of not necessarily what we're going through, but maybe even what we need. Gone are the days of great albums that are filled with song after song 
that's intended to be listened to as a whole. And now are the days of creating an album with a popular chorus enough to get you on the radio, and then nobody knows the second and third verses because you don't listen to the song anymore. Even though mainstream music now can be explicit, you know, I question, is it is it really validating? I think it really only perpetuates the opioid crisis and creates social bubbles that are so lacking of cultural diversity, it's almost regressive. There's plenty of validating and meaningful music out there. If you're looking for it in the right places, you can find music that totally meets your community and emotional validation needs. There's always been music, and there will always be music to meet your needs. You know, just a few days ago, I think it was March 13th, there was an article in the BBC about this death metal song that uh, somebody studied, and I, I don't have it in front of me to cite it. But they looked at this one song versus Pharrell's Happy, right? That Happy was a huge mainstream hit. And the people in this study, if I remember correctly, felt more empowered and joyful after listening to this metal song that was by a band, I think it was called Bloodbath, and had themes of cannibalism in it. So that, that explicit music was more meaningful to people than Pharrell's Happy. Is it because it felt more honest and less fabricated? I don't know. But I encourage you to check out the, check out the article. It was, it was interesting and validating for me. I do want to talk more about antidepressants, though. They're important. People need them. People need them to get through really tough things. So I'm not saying music is a cure-all. I think it's more important if someone needs antidepressants to take those antidepressants to keep them from committing suicide than it is for them to just rely on music. I mean, best case scenario for most people in mental health is that they're getting mental health treatment and hopefully that involves music therapy and sometimes pair that with antidepressants or psychotropic drugs. But in a lot of cases, those antidepressants are probably just a quick fix to something that's more deeply rooted. Issues that I think exposure to music can validate those not so pleasant feelings and maybe even alleviate some of those symptoms. And if not alleviate those symptoms, provide the structure needed to explore the symbolism and existential nature of sorrow, pain, trauma, whatever it is that person's going through. My hope is that given the empathy that the current generation and millennials tend to display toward each other and general social issues, is that music will then reflect that shift. We just haven't caught up to it yet. Because that takes time. If art is a reflection of life, let's look at where we are now and reflect on if the music being created is a legacy that we want to leave. Is it reflective of the life we want to live? So let's look at that. Let's look at music. Let's see if it's speaking. Let's hear it. And let's determine if what it's saying is important. I truly hope we're getting there to a place of reflection and change. There's always room for party music, but is that all we want to be? Surely there's more to say to warrant the need for explicit content. So I hope that you feel the same way that I do, that that music is validating, that there is a need for music to 
be explicit in some regards. And yeah, you know, we do need to protect uh, younger kids that could get a hold of music that's totally inappropriate for them to listen to. But should we take it away totally if it's appropriate and speaks to the person who's listening to it? No. I think that's when you call on a professional to talk about it with them, like a board-certified music therapist. I think it's important that you're given the opportunity to experience the things you need to experience. And if we're too limiting in the content of the music that adolescents are listening to, then we're, we're really taking something away from them. If we're too liberal with the explicit content that they're getting, then the music that's out now that's mainstream might do more harm than good. So it's really both sides of the coin. You know, if you give them too much party music and illicit drug use, and, you know, you might start something there. It might kindle a desire for something that they didn't know about before. But if we're careful, we can really open up doors for people who need help with explicit content. Thank you for listening to Nevermind Who Listens, hosted by me, Dean Quick. I've also created the theme music for the show, and I do all the editing and writing. So thank you again. This really is something I, I'm enjoying doing, and I hope you'll continue to listen. Find Nevermind Who Listens on Instagram at Nevermind Who Listens, and wherever you get your podcasts specifically Apple Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and it's hosted on Podbean. Thank you so much.